Okay, well, good evening, everyone. I'm uh, Harry Sherrard, and a uh, very warm welcome. Great to see such a big turnout for our uh, talk this evening. Now, our uh, speaker this evening really uh, needs uh, no introduction, as evidenced by the, uh, the sellout crowd we have here, here this evening. Um, Peter Stevens, design guru and also an educator of uh, designers following in his wake. Obviously, he needs to pass on his immense skills to, uh, to the next generation. So a big hand, please, for Peter Stevens. Thank you. I will just reassure you that you won't all die of cold because each human body gives off 80 watts of heat energy. So I don't know how many people there are in here, but we're almost generating enough to put it back into the system, I should think. Anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of by the by. Right. I start this by saying, what's he been doing for the last 40 years? Because uh, it's actually, including my college time, it's longer than that. And so I thought I'd give you a kind of glimpse of what I've been doing, some of which you'll recognise and some you won't. But I'll start with uh, what I'd call first influences. That's a painting by my father, and it's the Regent's Canal um, in St John's Wood in London, and we lived in a little house just up from the canal. He, he was a spectacularly good painter, actually, but uh, having two sons, he had to take more of a proper job because there wasn't money to be made in painting at the time. So he, he actually ran a museum in the east end of London called the Geoffrey Museum. And the Geoffrey Museum had a history of furniture and household artifacts in a series of rooms. And it's probably where I became fascinated by design because Saturday mornings um, I was allowed to roam the rooms and sit down with my sketchbook and do drawings and all these. So I could sit in a Queen Anne chair and draw um, a table or something, which uh, he obviously influenced me with that, but so did um, this chap here. This is a fellow who you can see cardboard cutout of him down in the museum. It's Dennis Jenkinson, who was not only the continental correspondent for motorsport, but he was a bit of a motorsport enthusiast himself. Here he is with my mother, who's holding the... Uh, the engine, the engine cover seems to be open quite a lot in lots of the pictures I have of him. It's open there because the engine's tied in with that rope that you can see which goes around the exhaust because he did drive these cars really quite startlingly hard. Uh, he introduced me to the fact that um, you didn't have to go in a gentle straight line in a car because he was magical at what was called Wishon with a 356 Porsche where with jerking away at the steering wheel you got slight understeer whilst full throttle meant that you got oversteer and it would drift around corners magically well. The, the car in the background is actually a MG KN Magnet, which was my father's car, which I later inherited from him. Anyway, so that's the kind of early stuff. So I became, not surprising, very keen on cars. And the, the first car that I bought was this 1930 M-Type MG. Uh, I sold my very nice McLean's bicycle and my mother never asked why the bicycle had gone and nor why I was walking off with a bag of tools because round the corner was the little M-type and that was with some, some chums of mine because when I got it, it just smoked like a chimney because, uh, and I you know, had to learn as I went along, but what had happened with it was that the, um, the valve guides had worn 
and I went to a place called Toolmin in South London and they put new valve guides in and they said, you know, this is a special engine with that camshaft because it was what was called, uh, I think, a double 12, which was a slightly more sporty one. Anyway, from there, because I was interested in the car design, I went to Royal College of Art and this was a, an Italian magazine called um, Car Styling and they came to the exhibition and two of the projects I did, they were very different from each other. I was interested in the idea of aerodynamics for two reasons really. One is that if you're going to design cars, usually it takes like three or four years before you know whether it was a good idea because people have bought them or not bought them. If you take your car to the wind tunnel, then in about an hour, you know whether it's any good or not. And I like that immediate kind of response I got from, from the wind tunnel, which meant that I was, have always been keen and involved in, um, in aerodynamics. But uh, that other was um, an off-road vehicle where, because I had at the time a 1942 Ford Jeep, and I mean, it was brilliant. It was extremely good, but you couldn't really put anything in it. And I came up with this forward control idea while I was at college as well. Uh, this, is, uh, this is my first homemade motor because um, although my father was uh, a curator in the museum, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a well-paid job at all. And if, uh, well, if you needed a bicycle, I had to make one. And then with a motorcycle, I bought what was a funny little Italian three-wheeler. I'm really sad. I, sort it out because probably it would be much <laughs> much more valuable than this thing which eventually disappeared but it had a little engine called an Itala and it was a kind of <coughs> kind of sprint bike the second one I did when I was at college which was somewhat appalled the college because it had a nice little Honda 50 engine and a megaphone which I loved the noise that it made and I actually went to sprint events with my uncle and he had a number of sprint bikes. The Norbsa was probably the best, which was a Norton frame with the BSA. And I used to go along with him and he encouraged me to build this actually. And it ran on methanol, so it sounded great and it smelt the business. And uh, it was actually quite good because in a quarter mile, it was in about 16 and a half seconds, which were, as you can see, there's not much of it. The, you can probably, and I can press one of these and we might see. You can see the thickness of the tubes is somewhat modest, actually, <laughs> because uh, of this one, because he was, my uncle explained to me, this is in compression, but that's in tension, and the ones there are in tension, so they can be like knitting needles, which, uh, because it was for a straight line, that was fine. So I'm going to now talk through some projects, and these aren't, this isn't a CV, so it's not in the, the order in which I did them, but... Um, Probably the most obscure project, because I worked with Tom Caron at Ogle Design. And Ogle had designed the Reliant Robin, and later the Resonant Kitten, which was a four-wheeler. And Tom liked the idea, and he persuaded Reliant that we should look at 1975, so pre-Esprit, we should look at a mid-engine car. And Reliant had a cylinder head made by... BRM, of all folk. And what they did, because it had the Reliant Robin back axle, and then there was the engine, and the engine pointed forwards, 
So then there was the gearbox, and then a chain, and then a prop shaft back to the back axle, which was all a bit convoluted. And because there wasn't um, money, because we were doing it with Tom's money, everything was flat sheets in it. But it, it's quite fun, because from that time ago, it was, uh, it was quite original then. I mean, nothing came of it, because Reliant were just unbelievably conservative, really. I mean, how Tom got them to do the scimitar, I'll never know, because they just wanted to do vans, really. Anyway, I would say, I call this most crucial deadline because um, this is the Jaguar XJR15 that there was a little bit of video there, which was of a friend of mine called Jazz Dillon that you saw. He's uh, one of the best trauma doctors in America. He's a fellow from the East End of London, actually, and he's done exceptionally well in America. His, his email is SikDoctor, because he is a Sikh, and he likes the joke. <laughs> it always comes in his email. Um, anyway, this was the, the, the Jaguar XJR15, and the, this had come about because the previous year, um, Tom invited me up to the NEC to look at the new sports car that Jaguar were proposing. And we went up and had a look, and it was the XJ220. And Tom was not really taken with it because it was huge. And it was supposedly, with a V12, it was supposedly four-wheel drive. And Tom knew enough about engineering to know that all of those things were very unlikely to be true. And he said, we can do better than that, surely. You know, why don't we do something where we give people the, the, the feeling of what it's like to drive a Le Mans car? So this was based on, but not using the chassis of the XJR8, which was the, uh, the previous Jaguar Le Mans car. But because of the fact we wanted to get two people in it, and it had to have some degree of comfort that the monocot was entirely new, but the concept of it came from the Tony Southgate car. So there's a, a, a few of them here. And the reason it was crucial was that in 1988, Tom had won Le Mans 24 hours for the first time with the Jaguar. And he thought he was going to do well in 89. And so he said, when I come back from winning Le Mans the second time, I want to drive the car. So we had just a year to go from drawings on a piece of paper to a car that he could drive. Unfortunately, 89 was not a successful year for Jaguar at Le Mans, but he did win again in 1990 by which time this was uh, into production. Um, Tom loved it, actually. He was really, he was passionately involved with the whole thing. I mean, he has a funny reputation amongst folk. I never had any problem with him at all. You just knew that nobody got up earlier in the morning than Tom, whether it was a race car or a race event or anything else. So he was pretty darn sharp. Uh, he used to read the rules with a very large magnifying glass. Uh, most amazing opportunity, I call this, because um, and this came about in a strange way that uh, I had been um, working as a freelance designer after I had, uh, had the pre-Jaguar, pre, um, but after Lotus. And I read in Autosport on a Thursday morning that Brabham had a new sponsor. And so... It's the way you do when you're younger. I just phoned up Brabham and I said, can I speak to Mr. Ecclestone, please? And the girl at the desk said, yeah, sure, of course you can. I'll put you through. And he said, yes, what do you want? 
And I said, well, I see you've got a new sponsor, so I think you want a new graphic scheme for the car and new colours and everything else. And he said, can you be down here by 12? And I said, well, absolutely, yes. You know, so uh, I, I luckily lived at that time in North London, so I uh, scuttled down to Brabham, and Bernie came out to meet me, and he said, right, I've got a bit of a problem here. He said, bit of, I've got Nicky Lauder here, and he's looking at the car, and he hates it. He said, so come and see what you think. And I went into the workshop, and there was the... Palmlap was the new sponsor. And this thing was like a fairground ride. It had every colour from orange and yellow and green and blue and silver and gold and white and black. And it was just hideous. And Nicky Lauda was stomping around it. And are we allowed swearing in here? <laughs> Go. Nicky said, Bernie, he said, there ain't no fucking way I'm ever going to drive a car looks like shit like this. It's simple. And Bernie said, oh, that's fine. Peter Stevens is here. He's coming up with some new ideas for tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, which was a bit uh, gulp. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, worked quite a bit of the night and the following morning. And Lauda was back to see. And I did the very simple. At that time, it still had the Alpha engine. So where the white is, it was red with just the white and blue on it. And it was very simple. And Lauda said, OK, that's a deal. Get him to do the overalls. Yeah. Oh, and the truck. Oh, and this. <laughs> so that's really how I started working with, with Bernard at, at Brabham. And it was terrific because he gave me really a free hand. And when we had the period of refueling the cars, and they'd bought a lot of uh, beer barrels. In fact, Bruce McIntosh might well remember who's back there. They'd bought some beer barrels to pressurise and put the fuel into so they could just blast the fuel into the car. And I said to Bernie, well, those have got to be blue. You've got to have blue anodized. Yeah. And uh, again, Bruce will remember, the way Brabham was is that there weren't complete walls between all the different departments. And so Bernie could stand there and he'd shout out, Herbie, come here! And you'd hear these little heels click, 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 click down the corridor and Herbie would come in and he'd say, all these barrels, they've got to be blue. Anything else should be blue. You know? I said, probably, well, this and that. Right, we'll do that. OK, Herbie, get that done. And that was kind of straightforward way that, that Bernard tended to work. <laughs> Which was nice. I mean, it was good, and I stayed until uh, things got rather sad there, and Bernie had lost interest by that time and was more keen on Boca, and they went back to some weird colours, which had nothing to do with me. Anyway, we're, I would say here, best, second best unknown project, this was when I was at Lotus, and this was going to be M300, which was uh, going to be, before we knew the word supercar, but it was going to be a, um, a car with a... It was going to have a Cadillac North Star engine, which was a big V8 American engine in it. Um, and I say luckily it came to nothing, because at that time, Lotus would have been quite incapable of building I don't mean it rudely, but they just didn't have any experience or any understanding of how you would build a car of this sophistication and complexity. So, but by that time, actually, I had uh, been asked if I'd like to go to McLaren. But it was, um, it was, it was fun because it, it, I mean, it would have been quite cool and the wind tunnel work was good. And we did it partly because we were involved with a... Chevrolet project, which was for a mid-engined car, 
and which was done by the design department over in Detroit, a fellow called Chuck Jordan. And our task at Lotus was to take it to the wind tunnel where we discovered it was somewhat similar to a Cessna. It was just extremely keen to take off. And <laughs> but unlike a Cessna, it was also very unstable. So, it was, um, so we actually did an alternative which um, eventually was built into what was, uh, I think it was called Serb 2, and it was a kind of, um, really just a car to experiment with new technology, including active suspension. So the idea was at Lotus that we'd do one of our own, which would be so much better than theirs. It probably wasn't, but... Um, what I also did while I was at Lotus, and this was difficult to explain because with Lotus doing principally rear-engine cars, mid-engine cars, and the fact that racing was all mid-engine cars, to be doing a front-engine, front-wheel drive car Lotus found it quite difficult to explain why they, were, why they were doing it. But in fact, one of the reasons was that they had been doing a number of front-wheel drive projects for General Motors and quite a few of their divisions and had found out what it was that made a front-wheel drive car steer and drive nicely rather than dart around all over the road. And they were sufficiently pleased with that and confident in it that they thought that doing their own sports car and including that, that technology, particularly the work that uh, a fellow called John Miles had done on the, on the handling of the car, that it would be good to really publicise their ability with front-wheel drive around the world for Lotus Engineering. And so it was agreed that it would be, would be front-engine and front-wheel drive. And because by that time we had been bought by General Motors, we were allowed to choose any engine in the whole raft of different companies that Lotus owned, and one of those was Isuzu. And it was, it was a very nice relationship because Isuzu was a small company in, um, in GM terms, and everybody got on very well with their engineers, and they loved the idea of their engine going into something much more sporty like this. So it, uh, I mean, it turned, out, it turned out very well. The engine was, uh, in fact, there's one outside, and the owner of it will know how neat, compact little thing the engine is. And it, it packaged, and it didn't compromise the shape of the bonnet at all, so we could actually make quite a, quite a dramatic-looking car. And it, um, I mean, it had a kind of, because it was then at a time when Lotus didn't quite know what it was going to be, and it was then sold to Artioli, who owned... Bugatti, and he was going to get rid of it, and then he discovered that there were 3,000 engines on their way from Japan, and decided not to get rid of it. And then he sold the tooling to Kia, and they made a complete haulix of it. But it, I mean, it was fun to do. It was an interesting project because I had by that time started a little design department, and it was very little, and we had two porter cabins joined together as our design studio and I took two young designers. Actually, both of them were guys I taught when I was teaching at the Royal College of Art a bit. And we made a, a, a really good little design department, and people kind of left us alone to, to do this. We did have to compete with two cars, one from Ital Design, which looked like a... I don't know if anybody remembers a Renault Fuego, but it looked, unfortunately, like a Renault Fuego. 
and then another one that came from General Motors, which looked like a kind of convertible Buick and was just monstrous thing. And so there was a kind of competition, but it was, it was pretty certain we were going to win. And because I kind of like winning that stuff, I made sure we did, I would say. But what we also did, I would, I would dis describe it as enjoyable and frustrating at Lotus. I mean, there were a number of... The first thing I did is this Lotus Excel down here, but I did that as a consultant for Lotus. And that was, I mean, it, it, in a way, it was a classic of that period Lotus because they wanted the aerodynamics to be much better. And so I went to the wind tunnel with it and I did a little kind of spoiler on the back and the way that there's a little splitter on the front. But it was quite neat and tidy. And unfortunately, it was so much faster than the, the previous model and it overspeeded the gearbox and so, and I can probably do this, I then had to make rear mud flaps to slow it down and ruin the aerodynamics, <laughs> which is kind of daft, you know, instead of doing something with the gearbox, the idea was we, we kind of spoil the, what I thought was the excellence of the car. So unfortunately, yeah, the, because that's kind of how things happened in a muddly way at Lotus. Now the one you can see up there, is the but that's the final version which had the Julian Thompson rear wing on it but the Esprit was good because I kind of inherited this thing which came from an Italian period of folded cardboard I used to call it and because the body was quite a serious part of the structure of the Esprit and it, it kind of moved around at the joints and the um, the resin would crack and the paint would then crack and it wasn't terribly stiff. And just by softening it a bit like this and putting the body together in a different way, it made the car much stiffer and the suspension was much better and it was faster as well. But there was an unfortunate thing that I took the original Esprit to this very good wind tunnel at Saint-Cyr, which is just outside Paris, and it was at the time one of the best wind tunnels. And we took the original car, and the drag coefficient was 0.43, which I don't need to tell you exactly what that means, but it wasn't good. In fact, it was pretty appalling, you know. I think a BW camper van would have a better drag coefficient. <laughs> so it wasn't very good. So taking this and doing a lot of work on it, and I got from 0.43 to 0.33, which was pretty darn good at the time, and it was more stable. And then the marketing people were just mortified, and they said, but we've been telling everybody it's 3.3. I said, well, it's not. Yeah, that's your problem. They said, well, could we say 3.2, you know, mm, because it's got to be better, you know. So reluctantly, I agreed they could, yeah, tell something that wasn't particularly true, which wasn't very, not very clever. Now, the other one there at Lotus, that was going to be M200, which was a replacement for the Esprit. And it was on all the underpinnings of Esprit, so it didn't deviate too far. But I did feel, wrongly probably, that, that didn't have much more life left in it. But they managed to keep it alive probably for, for 10 years. But that was going to be a proposal for what we would have done. So when I say best group, to, group of mates I work with, this was McLaren. Because whilst I was at Lotus in the... And I was getting to feel that Lotus, probably within GM, didn't have all the future. And in fact, it took years and years before they did another car. And because I'd met Gordon Murray when I was uh, working with Bernie at Brabham, he 
phoned me up actually and he said that he was looking for a designer and did I have anybody I thought might be good at working on a car that they were going to do. And I, we met actually in a, a pub and we had a few beers, at the end of which I said, well, it's me actually, you know, I'm not going to suggest somebody else. And he said, oh, well, kind of, all right. But he did say, but of course you realise it's going to be my car. Yeah, and I said, well, yeah, let's see what happens anyway. <laughs> yeah, and we, I mean, we went through a number of different things. I, I treated it very seriously as a proper design project, which is why these are just some of the sketches um, that we did for it. And it was interesting because when I got there, the idea to begin with was that it should be a single-seater. You know, and the word going around was that, oh, Ron thinks it should be a single-seater. And because not everybody there was in love with Ron, they said, but Ron would say that because he doesn't have any friends. But, <laughs> which, I mean, it, it, it wasn't actually true, but it was, there was a, a sort of certain movement for that kind of thing there. But um, it, it was actually a pretty darn quick project. It was... Um, I think about from, from 89 to 92 when we launched it. It was a totally foreign business to everybody at McLaren because when I cynically said to them at the time, well, you only build four cars and they cost £7 million each because if you divided the budget at the time for the Formula One team and the fact they did just four cars, that was sort of, you know, I said, well, it, you know, a road car isn't like that, you know, it's a different thing and you've got to comply with it. Oh, we know about getting round rules. No, you, you, <laughs> it doesn't work like that when it comes to a road car. And so uh, it was introducing them to the idea of all the testing and homologation and type approval that you had to do. And even things like the mirrors, which at that point I wasn't drawing and somebody had asked me about the mirrors on the, the pillars, which should have been a really good idea, but because the regulations weren't written for a car with a central seat, that it, the regulations give you a required vision line from the seat where you are, and so neither left nor the right mirror fitted with the vision line, so we had to do the, um, the, the VW Sirocco ones, which, which are what, on the car? There is, that's one of the, that's XP5, which was one of the, one of the prototypes that we did. We didn't do many prototypes. Um, and the, the, the big surprise, well, a number of surprises to them were, there are noise, a thing called a drive-by noise test. And because everybody, to a degree, cheats with a drive-by noise test, you have to machine down the tires to the minimum so they don't make noise you have to, if you've got any sense, you take all the gears out of the gearbox because the test is done in second gear. And so you just leave first and second gear so there's less noise there. And then you put really heavy grease in the, um, the rear drive shaft joint and you wind the brakes off so that you don't get it because the noise is so critical. And part of that also is that um, it has to not give off any noxious emissions which means that you mustn't polish the car before you go for that test because it captures all the air around the car. And, it, it, and it, it's funny, this was all a new language completely. 
because you can't cheat those things, you know, because there is an authority who do them. So that, that bit was really interesting, actually. I, I enjoyed that. And the, there were only about eight or nine of us in the sort of design and engineering bit, you know, and we're, we're still good mates, actually. And um, we, we still talk about the fact that when we were doing the project, we didn't... We didn't know what would happen with it. We didn't know that it, we hadn't a clue that nowadays, if you want to buy one at auction, it would be between 20 and 25 million, and that would have been a mystery. All we were doing is trying to make the best job we could of that particular car. And only yesterday I was talking with Steve Randall, who did all the, the suspension and NBH work on it, because at one point in a meeting uh, when there was this high-level enthusiasm for the car. And um, Steve said, you do realise if you're on a German autobahn and you're going 200 miles an hour and a truck pulls out to overtake another one quarter of a mile ahead, you'll hit it. And they said, no, no, nonsense. And Steve said, no, you know, that's not, that's mathematics, you know. It's a simple mathematic thing, you will hit it, you know, which is partly why we wanted to make it so safe in the case of an accident and things because you know that's just maths and that's how it works but uh yeah this, this was fun that was actually the car that we did for for Mansour Auger who was the principal funder of the project he was the one who owned tag technologies and had funded the tag engine for formula one and he wanted it in this kind of burnt orange which is uh it looked good like that. We went to a RAF station, as you can see, and they were, they were delighted with it. A friend of mine, Colin Kerwood, took the pictures, and what he particularly liked was that the nose and the front of the cockpit is very similar in profile to, uh, to that. I can't remember what plane that is. Anybody know? Yep. There we are. So we, I, I felt... But um, I, I, as I said, the, you know, the, we trusted each other tremendously with this, you know, and everybody respected everybody else's his ability with it, but what we couldn't trust was the customers, you know, and <laughs> unfortunately, you know, and this is a bit unfortunate, there's a guy with an axe, you'll notice, behind, I hate to, <laughs> I don't know what he thought he was going to do, you know, but it was, uh, I mean, there was no doubt that when you've got, you know, 620 horsepower and a car that doesn't weigh more than a tonne, uh, and it's wet, you know, or in Rowan Atkinson's case, and it generally was a diesel spill, you know. However clever you are, you aren't going to hold on to it. And I, f I forget where this one was now, but I've always thought the guy with the axe was scarily cool. But I, what I would say is what you can trust are your friends. And I've just got a little bit of video here, and it, it's my friend Andy Morris. Uh, Andy Wallace, not Morris. And he's at the um, VW test track where he took a, an F1 to do maximum speed. And by the time he did this, I had left McLaren. And when he turned up there, he phoned me at lunchtime and he said, it doesn't feel to be good. He said, when I get to 200 mile an hour, he said, it's kind of all over the road a bit and it just doesn't feel nice. You know, and because I'd done the wind tunnel testing, I said, well, tell me what ride height, tell me what 
this and that you've got with the car. And I, I tell this story because it, it's kind of when you have a bit of a grown-up moment in your life, actually, and I tell this to students particularly. And so I said, well, you need to do this with the ride height and you need to do that with the rear springs and dampers. And he said, oh, that'd be all right then. I said, yeah, that'd be fine. He said, all right, I'll give you a call later. And when I put the phone down, I thought, you know, and he's one of my best mates, I've just said to him, you know, sitting at home, that the car is now fine to do 240 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, and it is a bit of a grown-up moment, and I actually waited a long while until the evening before he phoned me, actually. But um, this is a bit of film that um, one of the chaps just took this little camera and a voice recording, and so it should be... On the banking at the far end, 215. This is kilometres an hour. Which is quite impressive. <laughs> and I, I think the fact that he's so cool and he kept an eye on the temperatures and all of those things is quite remarkable. It's funny, he said, we'll never be beaten. But in fact, it was beaten by Andy Wallace, who was driving a Bugatti at the same uh, uh, test track, VW test track. And he did just over 304 miles an hour. And by strange chance, uh, when he was going out to do that, I was going out on EasyJet to, uh, to Basel to work on a project uh, over there. And he was sitting next to me on the EasyJet, you know, because he didn't believe in travelling <laughs> in a fancy way. 
And he said, I can't tell you what I'm doing, but I'll give you a buzz when I get home, you know, and tell you what it was. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this must be something interesting. And when he phoned me up, he said, well, 304.3, he said, in a Bugatti. He said, and do you know, he said, when I came in after that run, the marketing people said, couldn't you do 305? Or maybe 310 <laughs> sounds better. And he says, if you want 310, you get in the car and do it yourself. <laughs> because apparently, I mean, you saw there that on the banking at the end, and you have to be nailing it at the beginning banking, and when you're going round there, though, you have to not overheat the tyres, so they're not too hot by the time you're going at the maximum speed, and then absolutely floor it on the straight, and then in the Bugatti, you have to know when to lift off quite gently, so by the time you get to that end turn, which you will see, and that's about seven miles along the, along the straight, he said, and it isn't easy at all, you know, he said, and when those buggers said to me, go out and do 310, I, I'm not doing that, you know, which is, I think, quite, quite reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's still very cool with that stuff, you know, he's a fellow you can sit beside and know that um, he's in, interested in looking after himself as he is in, interested in looking after you, which is cool. Okay, now this is, um, this, this was after I'd been at McLaren and I was invited to, by Michael Kimberley, to go and do some design work with Lamborghini, and this was the Diablo SV, and I mean, they were, they were pretty crude tube-frame cars, actually, but they wanted scoops, and they wanted scoops on the top, and I did a number of other design things on it, very frustratingly, because the Italians, two or three people said to me, how can you, an English, come here and tell us what a Diablo should be like, you know? And I said, well, because that's my job as a designer, you know, is to understand the culture of your company and interpret that as a three-dimensional form, which is what happened with, with Lamborghini. But it was always kind of doomed because when I was staying down there, they would change hotels for me without telling me, and I'd get back to the hotel and I'd find my luggage downstairs and they'd say, oh, we're overbooked, we're sorry, Mr. Stevens. Oh, you have to find yourself somewhere else, you know? And it, it kind of yeah, bugged me eventually, I'd have to say. But again, I mean, we, I couldn't trust those customers either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it does bring out the real foolishness, I say, in both these cars. And you can still see, it's mysterious, you can see on the internet, you know, people crashing cars. There was one of a guy leaving Goodwood in a Ferrari and he turns out of the circuit, goes down the road and spins across the road, just misses the Morris Thousand Traveller, actually, and spins back onto the grass. What are these people doing? Yeah. Anyway, while I was there, um, I did this project, which was to be L30. I should move the O sometime. Um, this was to celebrate the 30th anniversary of... Lamborghini. So this was, uh, I think this was in 93. So it was, you know, nearly 30 years ago. So it might be why it's called 30. Um, and they wanted something very different, you know, and so I did the schemes here. But uh, Lamborghini was in the muddle then because it was owned by um, some Indonesians, including the, uh, I think, the, the brother of the president. And they probably never had any intention, really, of, uh, 
of building any new cars, I think, actually, and I, I found it quite, uh, yeah, tedious. And after about a year, I just, when I went home one weekend, one weekend, I thought, well, I won't go back, because it ain't worth the time. <laughs> All right, so we, um, some best motorsport moments. This was a, uh, my friend Richard Lloyd, uh, we'd been mates since he was racing a Camaro and then um, an Opel Commodore. And then one day he called round to the house in a VW Golf GTI. And he said, this might make a good racing car, actually. And we went out for a zoom round the North Circular Road in London and decided to enter the British Touring Car Championship. And there was he and I, and we borrowed a mechanic from a VW garage and went racing. And in fact, I think it was either the first or second year we won the, uh, won the championship. You know, and he was a, a great buddy by then, and he bought a 924 GTR Porsche, which we had a good amount of success, and Tony Dron drove it quite a few times, and they, they won quite a few races with it. And then Richard said, well, I think we should move up, so I've ordered a 956 Porsche, <laughs> you know, which was a bit stunning, really. Because, but we'd been talking to Canon actually about uh, continuing the sponsorship they'd done on the 924. And they liked the idea of a 956. And so I went across with Richard to Porsche and he had a briefcase with him, which he hung on to quite tight because he then went to Jürgen Bath's office and put the briefcase down and said, okay, where's the keys? And they said, oh, here are the keys. Which unfortunately, they were keys for a race car, which we were pretty appalled at the idea. Especially there were keys on the door locks as well, which is really not what you want with a, with a race car. And they said, oh, your car's downstairs in the lower basement garage, and there's this white 956 Porsche just sitting down there. And they'd given him a kind of handbook, a bit like you might get if you were you know, buying a 911, actually. It was, I mean, it was not very clear um, quite what you did with it, but they just more or less said you're on your own. And because Canon wanted to take some pictures, I'd taken a big roll of red fasson sticky material. Well, I didn't quite do this graphic scheme, but I did something like it, and I cut out by hand a lot of big cannons in, in white material as well, and we decorated it right then and there so they could do the pictures. And then we took it to Monza at the first race, and much to our surprise, all the other 956s had high tails because it was a, um, a sprint circuit and a sprint race. And so the aerodynamic were quite different. When you bought the car, you bought it with the Le Mans tail. And they never told you there was actually another one, which at the time was probably 15,000 Deutschmarks, I should think. You know, and we felt quite silly, actually. <laughs> Imagine when you get to Monza and they've all got a different version. But we, we did eventually buy them. But we took it in, in 85 to Le Mans, which you can see. When I'm, each of the races that year, I did a kind of sketch of the car at different races, which was good fun. And it was nice for Canon at the end of the year. We gave them a, a little set of, the, set of the drawings. But we, um, what we hadn't realised was that when you bought an IM56, it came with a 2.6-litre engine and a Bosch Motronic one. And the factory and the Yoast team had a... 3.8 litre engine with a Motronic 2, 
And when we got our 3.8, they all had three, no, 2.8, they had three litres, and when we had three litres, so we were constantly one step behind with the engine and the, the motronic system. And in fact, at Le Mans, we chased the Yoast, which is the new man, black, yellow, and white car, for 24 hours, and our motronic failed, and we had to change it, which, um, the time it took to do that was about the distance we were apart at the end when we came second uh, and the, the Yoast car won. And years afterwards, when I knew some of the Yoast people quite well, they said, how the hell did you do that? Because we always had the better engine, you know? Well, what we did, because we had Nigel Stroud helping with the engineering, and we realised that we had to make other parts of it better so we had to concentrate on the aerodynamics and things that we were good at, which is why what you see on the top left is what we did for Brands Hatch, where we put this wing, because they understeered dreadfully most of the time. And they also, it's interesting when you hear about porpoising in Formula One, these things porpoised like mad at the front. And they would go down the straight, you know, literally bobbing up and down. So we did a number of different things uh, we later on did these little little bits here and we did splitters at the front and we, we fiddled around a lot because that was good at Brands Hatch but it wasn't particularly good on fast circuit. We also made our own rear wings. A friend of mine at Lotus, um, a chap called John Davis who knew a lot about wings and he gave us wing profiles. So we, as a privateer team, we, we thrashed away actually and we won quite a reasonable amount. You know, I think, I mean, eventually when Jaguar came along, it all got much more serious and expensive that we, uh, yeah, we, we kind of stopped then. But it was, I mean, it was an extraordinary car, actually, I must say, and it, the, the feeling I always had about it is that almost anybody could drive it and not look stupid, but to win, you had to be something quite different. And we had Jan Lammers in the, the first years with the car, and he was the one who discovered that with ground effects, no matter how hard you hit the brake at maximum speed, you could not lock the wheels. And he said, but the brake feels funny when I do that. You know, he said, but I can outbrake everybody. And when we went back to the workshop, we got him to stamp on the pedal as hard as he had, and the whole front bulkhead was bending. <laughs> You know, because it was a single skin of aluminium, which is where Nigel Stroud did a composite double-skinned aluminium, and the brakes were even more spectacular, and it took a long while for other people to realise what Jan was doing, you know, and so he could, he could really be very, very demon like that. And eventually, we, uh, we had a whole Nigel Stroud honeycomb chassis as well, so we went very, yeah, very far away from Porsche, which meant they were selling us less pieces, which didn't reason particularly. Okay, another best motorsport moment is, uh, for some reason, I'm, I'm the person who's wearing a green jumper. Um, and you're there somewhere, Ted. Where are you? Yes, it, yeah, that was when we went with these two McLarens and um, we went to Le Mans in 95 and we had... Um, this was the, the Dodi Fire-sponsored car from Harrods and the other one. This, this West, M, West FM was very cunning because 
We actually had West cigarette sponsorship, which you weren't allowed in France to have cigarette sponsorship. So there was a kind of deal done with a local radio station, which was called West FM. <laughs> and that's how we could still say West on the car, which, uh, which, which worked very well, actually. Um, it was that race where it absolutely poured with rain. Now, what we knew, and unfortunately we knew before we started the race, that, and it sounds like we was robbed, but we were. Um, <laughs> the clutch release was a ridiculous piece of engineering that was almost bound to fail. And <coughs> McLaren had decided it should have a heavier clutch, which in combination with the bit that failed, we knew that it was going to fail during the race. And so when it failed on this car, you had to take the gearbox out to change the clutch and the amount of time it wasn't going to win. Um, unfortunately, somebody then changed the pads and forgot to tell John Nielsen and he went straight out from the pits and crashed. Uh, the other one, we decided not to change it and Andy Wallace, again, heroic Andy Wallace, said, oh, I'll, I'll drive it and not use the clutch, you know, which he did for the last, I don't know how many hours. Now, but the shame was that driving this as well were Derek Bell and Justin Bell, you know, and Derek was very good and straightforward. Justin, poor fellow, and I don't mean it unkindly that he was out of his depth, but in the pouring rain at night, you know, he was probably not the right man to have in there, it would be fair to say. And I just still know I remember watching Derek, and instead of going and having a lie down after he'd been in the car, he just stood there glued to the screen, seeing his son out there and being absolutely terrified that his son was going to come off in a big accident. Uh, as a, on account of which, we, we actually ended up coming third, which was still pretty darn good. But, uh, yeah, had things been different, because it was highly competitive with, with Wallace in it, it was just spectacularly good. But luckily, another McLaren won. Now, this, this was particularly lucky for them because they didn't have the different clutch and they didn't have any problem with it at all. You know? um, but they won, and actually, it's the only time when a car has gone in its very first year to Le Mans and won the race. And most people said it takes three years to win the race, you know, and... Uh, Instead of which it was on the first... I mean, the, originally, the weather was really extraordinarily unpleasant. But it, it was a good moment, and, uh, you yeah. Ron was actually quite pleased, which didn't always happen with Ron. It, you know, he was good. And I suppose another moment was actually 99, where, in 98, BMW had put the project with Williams to do a, a Le Mans car, and it was an ugly brute, and there was an awful lot of things wrong with it. And it was also a very good vacuum cleaner. It would pick up any stray, stray newspapers and bits of rubbish and stuff off the track, and it would stick them on the radiators. And uh, actually, we, uh, well, we had a, a fellow called Thomas Bechere, and he bought one of the 98 cars. Meanwhile, I'd been asked by... Karl-Heinz Kalfeld at BMW, can you please make the car look better and maybe make it look like a BMW instead? Which, um, with the fellows, all the engineers, and particularly uh, 
aerodynamic friend of mine there. We, we made something which ended up actually looking quite good and it won the race. And our previous year's one, which we'd done a fair bit of modification to, I think, I can't remember, we came third or fourth, but we finished jolly well and it was, it was really quite pleasing. This was our car, you know, and it was nice and modest. It was black and it just had, that's the bank that Thomas Bescher owned. Whoops. Well, I'm going to do this anyway because this is 99 and that is the Mercedes. Um, and that was not the first time and it wasn't the second time that a Mercedes had taken off during that. That's a fellow called Peter Dumbreck who was extremely, unbelievably fortunate to survive that unhurt because the bit of forest that the car flew into had very recently had all the trees chopped down and there were just tree stumps and it landed on a tree stump but by good fortune it came through the side of the monocoque instead of the middle. Um, but in a way this was another one of those kind of grown-up moments because everybody down the pit lane had the camera and the television on in the garage and they saw that car they'd seen in both practice and in the warm-up in the morning they'd seen Mark Webber take off and fly at the end of Mulsan Strait uh, which and each time he got out of it unharmed which was very fortunate and then they saw that happen during the race and it's no doubt most of the drivers said and they said to people like me could that happen to our car yeah and you have to well, because I knew Jason had done the aerodynamics so well, I had to say, no, it can't, because we've looked at that, you know? But at the same time, you're in the garage, and they're out there, you know, at 240 on the track, and it, you know, it's easy to say from that position, and, and these chaps believe you and say, oh, fine, all right, in that case, we'll go fast and win the race, which is what, what happened, which is fairly spectacular. <laughs> OK, a best-kept secret. This, now, you saw this car... Some of you are on that bit of film there, and it's, it's this MG ZTT station wagon. And by that time, I was working, but I was working actually as a consultant for MG Rover as the design director. And one of our board directors, Nick Stevenson, who was a bit of a hot rodder and drag racer at heart, he wanted to build a station wagon that would go 200 miles an hour because we were intending to sell a V8 engine station wagon the year afterwards. And so we had this, and we had this car built by some friends of mine at a place called SoCal Speed Shop in California. And they did a fantastic job of it. And it had a, <coughs> it had a Roush normally aspirated engine. Yeah, and the engine, uh, Nick Stevenson wanted to see that the engine would produce um, 700 horsepower, and we had to take it to a, a rolling road to prove to him. And I don't know, has anybody here been in a rolling road when it's running at flat out? Because when you've got a car like this, which is chained with massive chains to the ground in the rolling road, and we're standing in there and it's producing 760 horsepower, so it's very hot, very loud, and amazingly dynamic and this thing's juddering all over the place and I'm looking at the chains thinking in fact they tell me that if it breaks loose it just stalls and stops dead 
because I thought this is going to be mayhem. But apparently it was it was fine, and we took it to we took it to Bonneville, and this was kind of this well kept secret that M.G. Rover, who were rapidly running out of money at that point, and didn't want to tell anybody in case it didn't work or whatever. And so I went out with my mates from SoCal Speed Shop and they didn't even send a photographer. So I did the filming and the photographs. And in fact, the photographs you saw with the dog and the other ones. And it was quite nice because what we did is, and we need to see it, we actually did their 225.609 miles an hour, which was pretty darn good. I, I had the chance to drive it on what's called the short course, where you're only allowed 170, and it was extremely exciting, I must say. It had, um, you, by the rules, you have to have a parachute on the back. What, on the shelf underneath, okay. Yeah, fine, yeah. Yeah, you have to have a parachute on the back, partly because if something goes wrong, you can pop the parachute and it stabilizes the car. But what you have to do uh, to pop the parachute, you really need to be on full throttle because if you lift off and the car goes kind of nose down and then you do the parachute, it lifts the front wheels off the air. So even on the 170, somebody said, now remember, you've got to be nailed and then do the parachute, which is a surprising jerk. But, and we held the record, I think, for about two days. And then somebody came with a station wagon with a thousand horsepower. But um, uh, Nick Stevenson, who'd come with us, and I said, oh, come on, you know, I'm sure we can get 230. No, 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 you know. And in typical MG Rover of that time, so we just kind of left it be. But it was pretty darn good, and it's going to be at the Goodwood of. Festival of Speed when they're having the 100th anniversary of MG and the car will be there and I think I'm going to drive it up the hill which geared for 220 it'll be a bit sluggish <laughs> going up the hill but um, yeah I might do something interesting on the way down but that's uh, another thing okay that's um, so I say most surprising project and this is because the people at um, SoCal Speed Shop also had built this, um, it, it's a Model A Ford Roadster, but it's got quite a big Chevy in it. And at the same time as we took the, the um, Rover, this did 196, which wasn't as fast as it, as it should be. And so we, um, we actually organized some money and brought the car to the Myra wind tunnel, which you can see here. And I tried all sorts of experiments including like smaller headlights, which was blooming obvious, and a fuel tank, which makes the airflow underneath a bit better. And 2006, it actually went 208 miles an hour without doing anything mechanical to the car. So we'd got like um, 40 mile an hour more, which was quite good because that was a record. And there we are looking quite smug. Yeah. It's good. I mean, the noise those things make and the whole business is magic there. Okay, there's a little... I call it lots of fun because um, this is in the wind tunnel. And I like the... This is the Myra full-size wind tunnel. And that's a, that's a famous piece of, piece of wool tuft. And it actually is very, it shows you what the air's doing. You know? It probably shows you that 
we didn't need those slots in the top, but they were, we thought that was MG at the time. And I'm looking at diffuser underneath at the back and still enjoying it, you know, it's just good fun. That was the car that came out of it, which was the MG SV. That again, it was our director said, I want a thousand horsepower sports car, which he, he couldn't have, but it did have a Rouse engine of its own. I, what I call the most reliable client, that was Subaru, and I worked for quite a long while with ProDrive and Subaru on the World Rally cars. And again, we took these to the wind tunnel, partly because when they take off, particularly in some rallies, like the Rally of Finland, the cars take off, and it sounds strange, but you want them to fly straight and level, because if when they take off, the nose comes up, then the driver can't see where he's going to land, or if you take off and the tail comes up, then it's quite likely it'll go end over end. So it seemed quite strange that we were mounting it on aerodynamic pillars in the wind tunnel to see how it flew, in effect. You know, and it's, uh, but it, it was good, and it gave the fellas confidence, you know, that they could take off and know it would land in the same way that it, it had gone. So that's a, that's a road car version of it. And they were such a, such a good lot. That's, I call the most reliable client, again, because... I did the, and in fact, that's mine outside. It's a Subaru uh, Legacy Outback, which is a, a very clever four-wheel drive system. The engine is a flat six that was a joint venture with Porsche. So the three-liter engine is 260 horsepower and uh, still very good, actually, I must say. And I did this like, I don't know, 22 years, 20, maybe more, 23 years ago. Yeah. It remains reasonably fresh, and it's just, there's still a knockout to drive. Coming out of a wet roundabout with a Subaru is always a pleasure. <laughs> okay. So this was the, this was the one where they got in the muddle and it went really ugly, this here, and I had just about seven months to, to redo the look of it because all the customers had disappeared. That's an earlier one with the, in its rallying, and this, this I like because... This was the final one we did, um, and we, we cheated outrageously because uh, uh, in order to lower the centre of gravity, which is crucial on a rally car, we actually... Oops, sorry, I'll just... I'll go back to the red one, that's it. Um, we lowered all that bit, but all this stayed in the same place as the regular car, which is why the line of the wheel arch drips back down, whereas on the road cars it goes straight through, because we had lowered everything except this stuff here. Um, and this was a startlingly good, startlingly good car, and nobody ever got tape measure out to see what we'd be up to. Uh, this is, I suppose, the least reliable client. This is MG Rover, and I'll just speedily do these, but this was, um, this was when the Chinese were pretending that they wanted to buy MG Rover, and so we gave a, a show to them of the directions we might go in, and we even put little Chinese number plates just to flatter them on the, on the car. Um, but they didn't really have any intention of buying MG Rover. They, what their intention was, to see it fall over and then buy it from the administrators, which is unfortunately what happened. Uh, meanwhile, we were doing a lot of bizarre things, and one of which was quite nice, and I just... This is a coupe version of the MG TF. And I had 
suggested it because we suggested projects all the time we were there. And I suggested that we should do this. And they said, no, it's impossible. I said, well, we want 17-inch wheels. No, you can't fit 17-inch wheels. And we want this hard top. No, you can't do that because you can't get to the engine. So secretly in design, we just went ahead and did it. And you could drive it. And it had 17-inch wheels. And you could get at the engine. Uh, but we were just a little bit too late because just a few weeks later, the company disappeared. But amongst the things it did, and again, I was involved, this was a, a Le Mans car with, with Lola, and it was just a little two-litre car. But the aero stuff that the guys at Lola did was super, and it, it ran very well for quite a few hours, actually, at, at Le Mans. It unfortunately had um, an engine which was probably close to a hand grenade or a Nissan, neither of which you're supposed to have. So, <laughs> yeah, the Nissan wasn't clever and it had to be disguised because it was an engine that had been done for Nissan. This one is a kind of extreme version of, um, of TF. And we've... But, I think it's more, this was in the last two weeks of the life of uh, MG Rover. And it was to be an MG ZT DTM car. And we took a ZT up to some people I know in Norfolk called Dove Company, and we, we quickly turned it into what was supposed to look a bit like a DTM car, but kind of knowing that this was <laughs> the death throes of the place and completely, completely silly. And it would probably been awful as a DTM car too. But it was kind of where the, the atmosphere at MG Rover had become so frantic that people just, you know, searching everywhere for something we might do. Now we get a quick, most extravagant project. When we launched the F1, Ron thought it would be nice to give all the journalists a pen which included all the materials that were used in the, um, in the F1. So there was a tiny bit of carbon, which was the clip here, and there was gold to reflect the gold that was in the, uh, in the engine compartment, um, and some titanium. And these things, to get them made, it, they were, at the time, when you think this is 92, they were 1,800 pounds. And so when Ron heard they were 1,800 pounds, he said, no way, we're going to give those to journalists. He said, no, we'll share them out amongst ourselves. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, but I was at the end of the queue, so I didn't actually get one, which is a shame, because it was actually, it ended up quite a nice piece, I must say. I said the, the second most extravagant project, this was the Toyota GT1, which in the same year I was involved with the 99 BMW, I was asked to do the road version, which is the one you see here, of the, their GT1 race car. And it, um, I mean, amongst the extravagances, it was decided to build a replica of the pits at Le Mans at the back of the factory in Cologne. And so they sent a team down who measured everything and they made a CAD model of a row of six pits and they were given to a builder in Cologne and unfortunately they didn't tell him how to orientate them in the car park at the back and he orientated them at right angles to the building. So you couldn't go into the pits and out because there was the building. So they were all knocked down and rebuilt turned through 90 degrees so they could practice coming in and going out of the pits. And it was the kind of sort of madness, really, that their attention to some of the details 
Like when I was involved with um, Andre de Contanze, and he did the windscreen wiper, and in order to change the front suspension at all, you had to take the front of the car off, then you had to take the wiper off, and you had to take the windscreen out because the dampers and springs were under the dashboard. So we had to design a stand that the windscreen could sit on so nobody knocked it over and broke it, and then a little separate thing that held the wiper. And it was, I mean, it was a kind of madness because Andre loved the idea that the wiper would come through a hole in the glass, and that would be really cool, even though you couldn't see it. So it was that kind of curious attention. And yet when they get, got to Le Mans and they discovered that it was only doing 11 laps on a tank full of fuel, and everybody else is doing 12. And what you have to do at McLaren is do the same as every, I mean, Le Mans is do the same as everybody else. Otherwise, you're carrying around more fuel than you need and doing a lap less. And so at the end of the thing, you've done two more stops. So they changed the ECU for the engine management, but the gearbox had its own little ECU and they forgot to change that. And so it broke the gearboxes because the engine wasn't talking to the gearbox and they would argue and blow up. So, I mean, it's the kind of thing, you know, with all of this other money being spent and then a simple thing like, oh, we forgot to do that. It's not terribly clever. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it's quite strange because there was one client racing against another, in fact, when I was there, but that was good. So the, the cheapest form of transport, that's... Um, a Hercules bicycle, that is such a brand new Hercules bicycle. Within a few weeks, it, it looked old. That was when I was working with Mahindra and Mahindra in India. And what I was doing was not really designing vehicles, but was showing them how the modern method of designing should work and the process you should go through. And if you were making a presentation to Anand Mahindra, who's owned the company, and his name was on the front of all the vehicles, you didn't bore him to death with three hours. You know, you went in knowing exactly what you were going to tell him, show him what you're doing, get a decision, finished and done. So part of that was them, and you saw a video of it. This is the, um, the 400. And that's a very simple little thing. That was called a rural utility vehicle. And I actually thoroughly like doing that because it was one that a village could maybe chipped together and buy between them. And it came in a number of forms, so there was a little pickup or a little bus or a van. And it, it felt really worthwhile, actually, because that was bringing, you know, modern transport of a sort, you know, to, to kind of uh, people who hadn't ever had a joint ownership of a car before. Okay, the steepest learning curve, this was Nemesis electric car that myself and a few friends did for a chap called, um, Dale Vince, who has Ecotricity, the company, and he wanted an electric sports car. Well, he bought a Lotus um, Exige, which is not the most aerodynamic thing you can buy. And when I took it, because with electric car, everything needs to be more efficient. And so when I took it to the wind tunnel, and it, it had typical kind of Lotus 0.4 something drag coefficient, and we wanted three, and so we did a lot of of work to the body. Um, but it was, this was 2009, surprisingly enough, with early days where even something like the fuses 
for the amount of energy you've got in an electric car, weighed two kilos, and they were huge, and they normally would have been mounted on a wall in a power station or something. <laughs> so we had to design a perforated aluminium bracket to hold our two kilo fuses in. Every part was like that. You, know, you couldn't just go and buy the bits that you wanted. So we had to make, for example, the composite battery box, uh, which is a mixture of carbon and Kevlar, but because of the way lithium batteries, even now, are not totally reliable, if they overheat, then they get to about seven or 800 degrees C and they burn through anything. Uh, so we actually deliberately made a plywood bottom to the box. So if it all went wrong, they'd all fall out of the car and with any luck, you'd, <laughs> you'd coast on a bit. And it was the kind of thing that we were thinking at the time. Um, but it was, I mean, all the, and they still are, all the cables are kind of massive. And when you come to wire it up, you need to hire a special man who does that for you. Because, you know, this is, you've got all that energy packed in that box, which effectively is like a, a, a small bomb there. You know, and when it's 480 volts as well, you know, if you touch the wrong things, then you, you've gone. And even the, the supplier of a UK, UQM who supplied the motors suddenly changed the design. And when they arrived, they didn't fit to the gearbox, which was, it wasn't a changeable gearbox, but it was a, a final drive ratio. And so we had to do that again. And they said, well, that's what the, that's what it's like, you know. And uh, just, I'm not going to bore you with all this, but it was, what's interesting is the weight of everything. And this is still the case, you know, that um, the way all these things are, even like the inverters, you know, and these things, you know, and you've, you've got, you end up with all these large weights, really. Uh, even so, it was only 1,100 kilos. And it's actually... It was quite quick to 100. We took it to Sneston to do a lot of tests. Um, it would go quite fast. But I mean, what was very instructive here was if you do performance testing, you get 75K. If you do it at 70 miles an hour, you know. So yeah, I, we weren't sold on the idea, but Dale was, uh, well, he took it out and crashed it, actually. But it didn't have a picture of that to show you how you can't trust the customers. Uh, a quickie one here is that this was uh, a Bruff Superior that was for um, this man here who's just had a disastrous accident, actually, with his um, steam car. But he, he wanted to have a rough superior with an electric start um, because he, he didn't think kicking it over was for him, which was quite fair enough. And so I also did in this little illustration here of, of how the bike looked in some early uh, cigarette cards of, of George Bruff, which was fun. And the car was, the, the bike was taken, no, this was another one. This was a Braff Superior, but a petrol one for the guy who had bought the company. And that went to, to Bonneville because he wanted to do, I think, 120. Okay. I say best road trip. One of my fascinations is actually Egypt and the Western Desert. And this was a trip in probably one of the finest machines in the world, which is a, a Toyota BJ65 which is utterly indestructible, totally analog. And these things, we loaded them with enough stuff 
for three weeks because we were going to be a week and a half away from anything. Uh, extraordinary. This is um, near the border with Libya and Sudan. Uh, and I described it, scariest moment, that we were driving along, and actually this was with a serious telephoto lens, and I said to the driver, there's some people there, we ought to stop. And he said, no, no, we don't do that. <laughs> He's, and then he gave me this pair of binoculars, and he said, you tell me if we should stop. And, yeah, these people are armed, and they are taking, they are smuggling these people across the bottom corner of Egypt, um, into Libya, and so he said, no, we don't stop for them, you know, <laughs> which we didn't. Okay, I suppose, least serious project. This was for um, Captain Scarlet, and it was for the, the series that uh, was done, it's a, nearly 20 years ago now, but I had to design the car for Captain Scarlet, and it was, uh, it was quite fun, because it had to do a number of things like fly, and there's a little bit of film here, So, yeah, that was the, the cheetah, which was good fun. And in contrast, the most serious project, probably, this was... Um, and it was actually a, a job for the MOD. And it was because it was that period when Land Rovers were getting blown up in uh, Afghanistan. And it was also a period where if the local people saw a Hummer, then they thought they were all going to die and doomed. And so the the government actually made a specification that it should be a bit Land Rover-like, but it should also look kind of a bit light and sprightly, which is fairly strange on a thing that weighs three and a half tonnes. But also, the, the clever people I was working with did the, um, the protection underneath because, at the time, what you needed to protect even a three-kilo bomb was enormous, and they did this extraordinary composite, which before it went in the autoclave was probably this thick, and the autoclave got it down to about 200 mil thick, and it was immensely effective. Um, it eventually didn't go any further because there was a change of government, and it was decided that we'd buy things from the Americans instead, which were huge lumbering monsters, which is a bit of a shame, actually, because it was, and it was quite fascinating to do. You know, well, it did feel quite serious, obviously. Okay, most exciting to drive. This is, um, in fact, this is a hot rod that I just recently bought back because when I had it in uh, at the beginning of the 2000s, there was nowhere to run it except Vintage Sports Car Club, who hated it because it was quite quick. Because it has a fantastic overhead valve cylinder head by um, an American. He was called Colonel Alexander, but Colonel was the name his parents gave him. He wasn't a Colonel at all. <laughs> but, um, and it's, it, I mean, but it is pretty darn spectacular. And I just, uh, three weeks ago, I bought it back, actually, from the, the second owner who'd had it after me. And it, um, this is it. Oh, this is just a... 
turn and it's very much exposed to the wind near the top. So we actually did some CFD here to make sure it wouldn't get blown over, which was quite nice and it, um, in fact, it was good. And the other thing, and again, because if you've got rules, then it's nice to look at the way around them. The, when this thing goes up 24%, the rule in Hong Kong is the floor can't be at more than 14% to horizontal for standing passengers. And so the floor is wavy like this, which looks cool. And so when you're at the steepest bit, you're standing still on a, just a 10 degree bit, which complies with the regulations. So it's the kind of you know, thing that I like to read the rules, thanks to, to Tom Walkinshaw. So it, it kind of come out like this, and it, it's, it's quite nice and fresh inside. Okay, now a couple of things here. I say going back is not always a good idea because um, I was asked by McLaren Special Vehicles to do a celebration of the 95 Le Mans winning car, and which we did, and we put a scoop on the top, and we did it in the same kind of grey and what have you. Uh, it wasn't... Um, well, it's funny, it wasn't popular within McLaren. Of course, I'd done it with SVO instead of with cars, you know, and it wasn't always popular outside McLaren because I'd done it at all. Weird. Um, now this, for example, this was um, this was the car I was talking about that we did. This was the one you couldn't get in, which was the Corvette, and this is the one we ended up with before doing our M300. And actually, I'd been asked to do a, a proposal for um, Car and Driver magazine about what a mid-engine Corvette might be like. And then, just last year, I got um, got asked to take the, um, the CR8 and make it more kind of outrageous and do some aerodynamic stuff, which is what you, what you see here that was quite good fun. We've just got worst hotel, because often with this I've had to stay in hotels and places, and this was in Gunmar, which is where Subaru's design headquarters are, and it, was, it always seemed to be misty and raining there, and the hotel, the doors were metal, and the kind of shower room was two big plastic vacuum formings. So it went, and it was sort of joined together like an early lotus, and it was just horrible, you know? <laughs> and the, the room was just miserable like that, and I, it always seemed to be kind of just awful, you know? And so that was, I think, without doubt, the worst hotel. As a great contrast is this is the Taj Palace in, in Mumbai. And when I was working with, um, with them at Mahindra, but principally I also would, took part as a judge in the Cartier Concours in India. And in 2008, we were in the, in the Taj and um, that's, that's how it was when I was there, and when I flew home, and the, the evening after I'd flown home, I was watching the television, and that's my room, on fire, and in the corner here was Prince Michael of Kent, but of course we'd all gone, you know, and luckily these, these people didn't realise, you know, what a coup they would have had if we'd all been there. But it was quite an alarming experience to suddenly see your room on fire on the television. So, 
When I say what's the trick, I, I quote this book that imagination is more important than knowledge. And I, I think it's good because with knowledge, you can only do what you know. With the imagination, you can go beyond the knowledge, you know, into hopefully making new steps. And particularly when I'm teaching, I keep this in mind because um, it's a Swiss psychologist. And as he said, that the idea of education isn't to turn out people just like their teachers, you know. It's, it's, it's to, to challenge them. I always say to students, you know, I want you to alarm me. I don't want you, you know, to entertain me, really. So I, I do these, which don't relate to any of us here, but on the other hand, it's, um, it's what I still try and do, you know. And this, this business of thinking your first solution is the best. What tends to happen with so many people using CAD now, which is very good at some things, but the thing with CAD is it's such an effort to do something that you're really pleased with, you know, that you hang on to it. You know, if you're sketching on paper, you can just screw it up and throw it in the bin and get another bit of paper. But at the moment, it's the CAD. It's terribly precious. But also, unless you have a particular kind of program, you don't know how you got to there. You can only see this highly finished example. And so for me, you know, that's why I, I still like a bit of paper. At which point we say thank you. Good. Okay. Right. I'm just gonna Well, uh, thank, thank you very much, Peter. A very uh, comprehensive overview of uh, your uh, absolutely outstanding career. Um, he's covered an awful lot, but are there any questions? Well, it's an hour and a half, so we did. <laughs> uh, anybody have any uh, questions at all? We've got, got one just here. Barry. Peter, thank you very much indeed. A fascinating evening. Um, you referred very briefly to an early influence, Dennis Jenkinson. Soon after that, you referred to your uncle helping you design motorbikes, one and the same person? Yes, Dennis Jenkinson, are, yes. Are you able to tell us very briefly that, no, some ab memories? Ab absolutely, well, because he, w I mean, he was enormously encouraging and all that stuff. The nice bit was, he and my father were the very best of friends, and they were both called Dennis, but one with two ends and DSJ with one end. And they would go off in the Porsche to Italy to the Grand Prix, for example, and then he'd drop my father off, we'd go and look at paintings, and then in the evening they'd both go to an opera, and then Dennis would go back to the Grand Prix. So they, and they had, they sent me postcards, you know, from all of these, which was just a, a delight. But also the fact that my cars were fairly sort of rough and ready then, whenever I went to see him in one of them, he'd say, Oh, why don't we can make a new exhaust, you know? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll weld up a new exhaust, you know, with something quite fruity but properly made. So he was constant encouragement with that, you know? And it, just there's a small story that um, when I went, before I had the little sprint bike of my own, and he had a VW Beetle, and he'd taken the front passenger seat and the back seat out, and he'd just put a little bucket seat in the back behind his seat, so the motorcycle would fit inside it. 
And so I, I sat in there, you know, with this cans of methanol and the strong smell of methanol. <laughs> and we went down to things like the Brighton Spreed Trials or Bassingbourne and uh, Duxford and all kinds of sprints. Yep. So. So, okay, I think we had a question just around about here. Okay. I'll start running about, he's got to do. Let's help you um, I've heard that designers are, are notorious for um, never quite being satisfied with uh, the final design. Have you ever had, uh, you know, and always obviously you're working with certain compromises, have you ever had a design that you've left and you said, I couldn't improve that, I was delighted it's, with that or not? It's, that, it, it's interesting because when I'm talking with design friends of mine and we talk about whether we got 50%, 60%, 80%, 90% of what we had intended, you know, because we never got 100% because we would be greedy and demanding. And I would always cynically say a designer's job is to set challenges for engineers, you know, because engineers wanted to go home, especially at Lotus, early on Fridays, and we'd be quite happy to stay until nine. So that was almost inevitably going to happen. You know, um, so I mean, things like the Elan is probably about 60% of what I wanted, mainly because the wheelbase came out wrong, and so did the track, which meant the wheels I thought weren't in the right place. Um, whereas probably with the XJR15, that was like 95%, because there were only four of us, you know, and I was doing how it looked really, and so that was, you know, so they're kind of between the you know, 60 and 90. But it, it is inevitable, yeah, and, you know, there's no point getting childish and throwing your toys out and all the rest of it, because that's what they expect of designers. I mean, Kevin Howard, MG Rover, you know, expected that I would be a fusspot, you know, especially when he bought badges from Turkey and they went um, sort of opaque looking within a month or two, and I would not unreasonably get annoyed for saving 20p. Yeah. So, yes. Any other questions? Just got, got one. Just got one. Uh, ah. Neil, Neil, I'll come to you just in a second. Neil, yeah. Neil and Peter used to work together at McLaren. Yeah, and um, Peter, fascinating. Um, I was one of my questions was going to be: Have you moved over to CAD design? So I'm pleased to see that you, like Adrian and Gordon, haven't. But. Talking about Myra Tunnel and your CFD, your sorry, your drag figures. Yeah. Um, when I was at Myra with Tyrrell, there was no rolling road. Is there a rolling road there now? And if uh, not, how does that influence the drag? There's still there still isn't a full size rolling road there. They've got a very good scale model tunnel with a very decent rolling road. What they have instead in the fixed floor, they've got this. Curious V-shaped bit of metal, which is about 100 mil high, and what it because what happens if you don't the boundary layer builds up, and by the time it gets to the car, you know, it, it's a huge bit of turbulent air, and you can't really trust anything. All you can do with that is know that it was a bit better than your last run, without knowing. But if you put the the V-shaped thing in, you know, and you kind of set it up properly and you give them extra money in the evening so you can blow the wind faster, <laughs> which you can after six o'clock, you know. 
but it, it's more expensive, then you can get a much better result. That, that's for sure. But it, it still isn't a full-size. But the full-size rolling road, it's always hard to know. You know? I mean, there was a little, little story I told with the, the wind tunnel they had at Brabham, which had a rolling road. But when I tested, and I was doing a specific bunch of tests, and I knew what they ought to be, not on a Brabham car, and they, the results were all over the place, you know, which was a bit of a mystery to me. And then I was thinking in the evening that I remembered burning my knees when I went to kneel on the rolling road. And I thought, I wonder if it's the temperature. Because if you took a long time between doing one change and another, the tunnel cooled down. But if you did them quickly, it got hotter and hotter until you couldn't kneel in there. You know? And of course, that affects the density of the air and blah, blah, blah. You know? And I didn't use it again. <laughs> because, yeah, which is... Well, just one, one final question, then I think uh, someone just down here, and then I think we'll... Oh, they're going to shut the door. Hi, Peter. Uh, my name's Will Baxter. Um, my question is really, your career has gone... It's not like you worked at Porsche for 40 years. You've been ups and downs, highs and lows. So I want to hear a bit about that in terms of business. And you're a designer, but you're also a businessman. What's the balance between the two? Or has your reputation been so fantastic your entire life, you've just had endless jobs thrown at you? Just talk about the highs and lows of running your own design business, really. Yeah, that's, um, I, I mean, I started out when I had got my degree at Royal College of Art, I went to Ford Motor Company. And what I observed at Ford is that either you just became a studio person and you kind of almost did decoration on the walls and you'd go on and your whole career would just be, you know, sticking stuff on the wall, really. Or if you were a bit more focused, it became a kind of career path and you'd end up, well, you'd start by having a 1300 Escort, and then if you were really good, you might get a two litre even, and then you might have a Capri, etc. And I thought, oh, I can't do that, you know, this just looks too tedious. And I saw some of these, you know, old, disgruntled, grumpy old men there, and I thought, I don't, I don't want to turn into one of those too quickly, you know, it's taken me years to become a grumpy old man, but so I didn't want to do that too quickly. So I, which is why, I, I went to Ogle, but I went as a kind of consultant to Ogle Design, and I did just four days a week there. Um, that was Tom Karen drove everybody mad, including me, and so four days meant I could catch my breath at least, <laughs> at least once a week, uh, by which time I was doing a bit of freelance stuff with race teams and things. You know. And then with, with Lotus, they said, well, now that GM own us, we can't have you freelance, so you've got to have a job, which I did, you know. And, oh dear, this is a bit, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not wide enough for me, really, because I was impatient, which is why I was doing the Porsche stuff with Richard Lloyd while I was at Lotus. And they were quite happy with that. And so, you know, it, it's kind of been in the same with, with McLaren then, and then I thought, well, well then we're not going to do a new car again for ages, and I, turned out to be right, you know, and so, so it has bobbed up and down like, like that a bit. Um, and it's, I mean, that, 
at which point that's not the way to become a millionaire, but that really interests me in the least, you know. But there are, and if I'm unkind, I would say there are some people who like being a designer, and there are some people who like designing, yeah? And I like the designing, and I don't need to stand in front of it. But most of you get trampled to death if you try and stand in front of your work at a motor show. Well, all those who want to be ahead of you. So it, it, it's, it is kind of, it is sort of like that, you know, and it's, um, I mean, there is no doubt people are investing less in new projects wherever you are and whatever company you work for, and it must be hell to be in Jaguar. Well, I see the chief exec just left because he couldn't see any good coming of it, probably. And I, I mean, it, it drove my friend Ian Callum to destruction just about, I mean, literally, you know, he was not well at all afterwards. So, yeah, I'm quite glad not to be doing that. Okay, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Big hand for uh, Peter Stevens. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, good, thanks. Yeah.